mean, I do love certain music at certain mm -hmm. time, I think. And there's some music, I mean, there are people who could do Broadway, and it's inspired, and it's with an open heart, and it can touch me, but mm -hmm. I can't bear to have music on when I'm trying to do anything else. But I want you to say again what you said, because it's so clear to me, I haven't ever even tried to explain it to myself. It's just, this is the way it is, folks. I'm sorry there's not music in my car. There's, you know, just nowhere anymore, hardly. But you said something about... About we're made of sound waves? Is that what you wanted me to say? Yeah, you said because it's the old vibration, but I just want to get my mind... When, you know, Agni used to do a wonderful... I think I'll use, I'll make a visual display here. Can I move over here, John? Agni, when he would used to do this... Uh, uh, seminar about music. He would make a picture like this. And he would say, you know, that here's the ohm vibration here. And everything comes out from the ohm and gets... I mean, he drew it. That's, isn't that great? Isn't, aren't you glad I did a visual display? <laughs> That's the ohm? That doesn't make any sense at all. I, I started to draw it. I don't know what he drew. He couldn't possibly have drawn that. I'm just going to take it off. This is too absurd. I'm too embarrassed. Good Lord. <laughs> Why don't you roll the tape back? I'll just start over. Agni would make this picture <laughs> of the ohm vibration. You know, the perfect sound of ohm. That's what we practice when we meditate and we try to replicate it in all the different ways we can. The, the closer we are to the pure sound of ohm, the more we are centered in ourselves and the stronger we are. All other sound comes from ohm. Because that, that was the word. In the beginning was the word. All language, everything else, all music comes from Om. Some is closer to the Om. They say that Sanskrit is closer to the Om. Because it's, it's closer to the actual vibratory sound of things. The Hong Song mantra that we do when we meditate is said to be the vibratory sound of the breath. And that's the power of it. That if you could hear the, hear the sound of breath, it would sound like Hong Song. Said perfectly. And, but as you move out and you get more and more separated from the natural order of things, you get farther and farther away from the Om. And so, and some of it, you know, actively draws you away from the Om. And the farther you get away from it, if you're either attuned to it or attempting to attune to it, the more disharmonious it is with what you actually are, because vibration is the substance of which we are made. Matter is energy vibrating, right? And so that's why it hurts so much. That's why rap hurts. Because we're vibrating like this and it's hitting us like that. And it's not hitting us intellectually. It's not hitting us um, in a secondary way. Even visual things you see are secondary. You have to see it through your senses. So it can lift your heart and touch your soul, but it's still a secondary experience. Music is a direct experience. That's, that's why it's so powerful. Um, and Swamiji speaks of melody is aspiration in music. And you see what's happening in music modern is that we have no aspiration. We don't know where we're going. So the melodies are getting duller and duller, worse and worse, and now they're gone altogether because we have no aspiration. So there's not even a melody in music these days. It's just literally noise. Yes? There's also the, the principle of sympathetic resonance. You know, where if you have two violins in the same room, and you pluck a string on one of them, the string on the other one, the same string will begin to vibrate. Mm -hmm. And so oh, that's... That they found that uh, there's a classical piece of music that goes dun, 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 d
it actually vibrates at the same frequency as some forms of cancer. And wow. so the idea is that it can, if you're listening to things, it can, you can have that sympathetic resonance within you if you have that, those, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, so it can actually um, cause something to happen. That's the night on ball. What Nine you were saying was night on ball mountain mm -hmm. by a blue set of time composer. Luzorski. What? Luzorski wrote night on ball it's a it's a death march. No, that's Chopin's funeral. Yeah, it's actually Chopin's funeral. It's actually Chopin's. It's very unusual. Well, Chopin. It's it's hard to believe. It's actually Chopin. It's it's a Chopin funeral now. What we should learn. Leonard Maltz. You know, he would just get the bite, the, and um, Sherry Edwards used to hear it. <laughs> She'd hear your illness <laughs> because you were making a certain sound. If you, if you were healthy, you had a certain sound. If you were unhealthy in certain ways, you were making a different sound and she would hear it. Just like mo most people see lights or auras if they're psychic, they would, she would hear the sound. And she would hum people's characteristic sound. She was such a character. She would sing your song for you. This is what you sound like. And then she would go, you know, and, and people like Ram, who's a very unusual man, he had a very unusual sound. It was just different than most people's sound. It's very odd. And she could, you know, cure diseases and stop bleeding by making sounds. She saved her daughter's life. They, her daughter was injured badly some distance from medical help, and she started doing the right sound and stop the bleeding until they could get to the hospital. And then when she finally got to the hospital, she stopped and the blood started gushing and they saved her. She would have bled to death. Yeah. Because they would know, because they're closer to it. They're not as separated from what's going on. Fascinating, isn't it? Okay. Well, that's a good place to end. Thank you all very much. Very interesting. Thank you for your interest. Okay. See you next week. Mm -hmm. So, who does the artist create for? Is it himself because he needs to for his own clarity and growth? Mm -hmm. Or for others to inspire them? Or maybe it's both? You just answered it. He actually talks about it more in the chapters that we're about to read. He's, he, gives, he gives essentially you know, without getting into those chapters, let me say it. You know, he says, well, he, okay. The purpose of art is that it's, it's a perfect combination of reason and feeling. It's a, it's a way to develop intuition, to bring reason and feeling into balance. So it's a personal practice. It's a sadhana. Practice correctly, and that's what we'll talk about tonight. It's good for you. If practice correctly correctly in the sense, and, and this Swami talks about, correctly in the sense of, uh, well, correctly in the sense that he defines it. <laughs> I mean, he himself that, says that. I mean, why say that people should be different than they are? This is his theory of what the purpose of art is, and it's based on the principles. It's art, art for the purpose of self-realization. For the purpose of self-realization, you practice art because it develops your own intuition. 
you practice art because what you create is a mirror back to you of who you are and it helps you helps you understand yourself and and the process of trying to create art that's uplifting well forces you to grow stronger in the ways that you're trying to grow strong which is with clarity and intuition the purpose of art also is that if you have a deep experience or a true experience that is uplifting and you can communicate that effectively then other people can also be uplifted and learn from that experience and you get the good karma of helping them and then he lists the last one which I mean I'm summarizing what I'm going to say at greater length which is that the creation of beauty in the world actually draws more beauty into the world so it actually makes the world a better and a finer place not merely because your art is on the wall but because if there's beauty then devas and astral entities high astral entities and angels will want to hang around here because it's a nicer place to be they'll be magnetized by the vibrations so those are all the reasons to do it sort of like a good mentorship or a good um, way of others learning. Um, from your experience? From your experience, right. yes. But I don't think he's making the case that that is a substitute for them creating their own art. No, he's not at all. I mean, he doesn't quite say it, although maybe he says it later. I mean, my recollection when I read this manuscript for the first time was it that he, he says somewhere essentially that being an artist is a necessary stage on the path to self-realization. And I just got a very strong sense that you just... Because you, to be creative, does that mean... I mean, according to other things that Paramahansa Yogananda said is essentially you do everything. Before you're liberated, you have to do everything. Because until you do everything, you're going to still imagine it's going to make you happy. So sooner or later you have to do everything. And so to be an artist is certainly one of those everythings that's out there. So that implies, but there's also a point at which all the lessons have been learned. You know, I mentioned this at the first class, both Master and Swamiji, the two exemplars of the ray that we follow, closest exemplars, you have Christ and Sri Yukteswar and others, but they are creative artists. Not all Masters are creative artists. But, but our particular, our guru and the disciple who guides us on our path are enormous creative artists. And uh, all of sol uh, Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. Is, so when you follow a certain ray, you get in tune with it and the vibrations of it affect you. Now whether that means we all have to eventually take up some form of art, that seems unlikely. But that we should all be artistic, it's part of, it is part of, quote, the Ananda way. We just never do anything in, a, in a, st a straight manner. It's always, um, you know, we put cookies on a table and somebody brings five kinds of colored cloth and silver dishes and, gl and glassware. I mean, nobody is capable of just being zen about it. There's the table, there are the cookies. And you go to some ashrams and you know it's just barren. And it's not necessarily wrong, it's just their vibe, you know. Their vibe is total, you know, their art is very plain, so to speak. But for us, we're very lavish. It's, it's the, the model that's been set for us. But what I was starting to say is you could reach the point, of course, where all... What, this is where I was actually going with that thought I forgot. Where there's nothing left to learn, so you don't do anything at all. I mean, why, uh, Ramakrishna... Well, did he write any poetry or not? I don't know. Sri Ramayogi, who is a self-realized master that Swami talks about, he just lived in this little village and talked to the uh, residents about food. You know, he just never did anything. 
but he, he, his, his art was himself, his vibrations, but certainly in past incarnations. And when Swami actually even said to him, don't you think you ought to be doing something, <laughs> in essence? I mean, he said it more kindly than that. He said, uh, God has done what he wants through this one, or God is doing what he wants through this one, meaning there was no point in any of that anymore for him. But for us, you can see why there would be. And for Swamiji and for Master, it was just a service. Swami himself had no personal reason to do it, but it was he had a he had a compelling karmic need to serve his guru's work, and therefore all the artistic development of who knows how many lifetimes, you know, has just flooded out of him in all these different fields. You know, what you see is not someone aspiring to be an artist. What you see is someone with so much behind him that he just opens the different doors and it floods out of him. Yeah. And he himself says that. He mentions that in a number of places. He has no need to do it. It doesn't matter at all to him. It means nothing to him. You know, we, we have these... He's inspired by what flows through him. He weeps with joy by what flows through him, but he, has no, he doesn't have the need to create. And he, he, he means that not only the ego doesn't need to create, but I don't think karmically he needs to create. He needs to serve. And therefore, he uses whatever abilities he has to serve. You see, it's very different. If, he, if, if the best way for him to serve were for him to be a hermit, he would be a hermit. And never look back. But that isn't what God wanted to do through him. So he's done all these other things instead. But to him, it was just serving his guru. It was never writing music, writing books, writing this. You see what a huge difference that is? In fact, in the chapter called The Secrets of Creativity, he tells us, Ha! There's the secret. If you're just thinking about serving God, then you can be quite inspired because there's no self to interfere. And that's why he's always telling us, oh, you can do this. That which I do, you can do in greater things. Just do it this way. That's the caveat. <laughs> just forget yourself completely and think of God. Oh, sure, that's not a problem. Starting in the morning. Okay. <laughs> After I work out a few other ego kinks. Okay. Is that enough, Nina? Did I answer those questions? Certainly. Any, anything else? Mm -hmm. Just a little comment. I just kind of impressed by Swami saying that about Shakespeare. Apparently, he, uh, he seemed to indicate that he was, uh, well, I think he said he was writing from the superconscious. Well, it's obvious and, that he is. Well, I mean, but that doesn't mean to say, that's not to say, but, but, let me say that it's obvious. It's obvious in the context that Swami's describing. Yeah. Swami makes it obvious from the way he describes it in the book. That's what I meant to say. Once Swami lays out what he lays out. But you have to appreciate that he wasn't necessarily saying that Shakespeare himself was in superconsciousness. You know, as like that he wasn't necessarily a self-realized being, but that his inspiration came from the superconscious. And that's also what Swamiji is trying to explain to us when he's talking about how we ourselves should create. Swami's giving us the keys to attune ourselves superconsciously and allow our inspiration to descend into us instead of merely roiling around in the subconscious and then just pulling up all these different, sometimes fascinating, interesting, bizarre images, but yet lack the palpable sense of inspiration that, that comes when it, when it descends to you from a higher level. So there has to be some elevation in the, in the creative artist to be able to, to lift your consciousness and receive that. So in that sense, of course, Shakespeare had to be a refined person, and that's what he, he talks about, and that's why, you know, the 
there's been sort of a popularization of a denigration of Mozart, starting with that movie Amadeus and others. You know, it's just sort of like it's become popular to portray Mozart as a boorish, unrefined character. Now, maybe there's some fragment of historical truth in it, but when you listen to his music, it just doesn't make any sense because no genuinely boorish human being could create that music. Now, that doesn't mean that he was socially adept. You know, he could have been completely socially inept. He could have, as Swami describes it himself, he could have just been completely unable to relate to the world in any normal fashion. And he may have then appeared to be boorish. But that's quite different than actually being boorish. And, and therefore, even such a person who is inept would not come across vibrationally the way it's become popular to betray, uh, portray him. You know, even that movie, um, Shakespeare in Love, which many people liked a lot, I just, I have such a hard time because I, I have trouble stopping being a minister sometimes <laughs> to just enjoy things. It's just like I see them and I, I think of all the classes that I have to teach, and especially with romantic movies, I think of all the counseling I'm going to have to do. <laughs> you know, it just, and they just wear me out. But I, I, I found that movie really, really hard to enjoy, even though it was exceedingly clever and well-acted, because Shakespeare was an idiot. And there's just not a chance in the world that Shakespeare was an idiot. He just could not possibly have had such a crude temperament and been able to channel what he channeled. It's, it's just ludicrous. And it just betrays the ignorance of the people who make the films, shows you where they get their inspiration from. Now, nonetheless, well, I don't know, I, I dislike the whole movie intensely. I can, if, I could, if it weren't about Shakespeare, if you just put another name on it, of course it wouldn't have worked. But, but you see why? Because it was just wrong. And it perpetuates these, it, and it perpetuates big red plastic objects in you know, beautiful old mansions in Vienna because people just get so confused about what things are. And then they behave in crude and boorish ways and um, degenerate, live degenerately and then spit out some subconscious nightmare and call it art because, see, Shakespeare was just like that, so was Mozart, and it's just... So it all, um, it all pulls the whole culture down inch by inch. That's what I was talking about the other night, just inch by inch. And being down here at the bottom trying to lift it up, you know, I, I resent what they were you know, putting on the top. Sometimes I do go to the movies, and sometimes my mind shuts off enough for me to enjoy them. But uh, mostly I don't. <laughs> so any, any other questions or comments? Yes, John? Uh, that brings up an interesting question, because I know... Could you comment? Swami's made the comment too that is, uh, obviously they're turning into a much higher conscious, in fact, into a super conscious level. But um, some people, you know, he's made the comment as, as people evolve that a lot of their flaws become very magnified so that they themselves can actually see their own own flaws. Well, if you if you're running a lot of energy through your system, everything is bigger. Right. Yeah. And in, in some respect, maybe some of the comments about some of the, historically, some of the comments about the people, you know, quote, having, not boorish, but let's say bad flaws, maybe. Well, it's. It, Do you think that's a. No, no, because it's not. Well, I mean, Tara Mata in SRF is the example that Swami's always using as an example of someone who had great spiritual consciousness and because. They had such, such enormous spiritual consciousness, their flaws were also enormous. But she wasn't a boor. 
on any level. She was just insensitive. I mean, you know, it's, it's quite different. You know, you could have anger, you could have something, but there's, there's still, what they portray is people who would never be capable of creating because they can't concentrate, they can't get past their feelings. I mean, you know, here's all the secrets of creativity here, and you, you're, what's portrayed in front of you is people who wouldn't be able to do any of that. Somebody like Taramata, for example, who, who could be unspeakably unfeeling toward people, nonetheless had enormous powers of concentration and meditation and attunement and determination and clarity of thought. And you see, so it's very different. But you have somebody like that Shakespeare character who you know, was just hopping from bed to bed and stumbling here and stumbling there. Such a person, such a lifestyle would not be conducive to clarity or concentration. Now, I'm, I'm not going to use that movie as the Bible. It's just, but it, it's, I mean, to sort of, I'm not going to say that it's so self-consistent that it really illustrates the point. I'm just saying that it has a lot of elements that illustrate the point. You okay. No, that's good. It was a good. That was a good question, and it's an important one too because taking it back to where we are, art is a guide to self-realization, artistic and creative expression as a guide to self-realization. We have to understand, you know, what those people were really like, because we're trying to emulate them in our own little way, and so we don't want to get fooled because a lot of what is going on is that this other picture of of artists has become very popular as people who are dissolute, you know, and uh, live very sort of seedy lives. And Swamiji himself, he writes in The Path when he talked about wanting to be a playwright. And so he wanted to mix, you know, sort of with real people when he was in college and he and his very effete intellectual friend, they would go and they would eat in truck stops, you know, and things like that because they were wanting to get the feel of the common man and and just sort of try to sort of because all artists had to sort of relate to the dark underbelly of life because that's like the picture that's there the Ernest Hemingway sort of a character I mean I maybe I'm, I don't even know him well enough to use him as an example but you know there's kind of the hard drinking hard drinking hard living you know kind of uh, sensualist now that's the artist well depends on what kind of artist you want to be and so we, we have to have it very clear. What kind of artist do we really want to be? And Swami's really, really good in here because he, I'm going to sort of, I, I actually made some notes because they're real specific points. So I want to hit them, but let me sort of see what happens if I just shoot around like this. But he, um, he, he, he talks about this. He talks about, he makes a very, very interesting point that's very relevant to art and also relevant to all of life. In the first chapter we read when he said, values are directional. The word directional is like, in the last 10 years or so, Swamiji has become extremely fond of that word directional. I think it was always there, but it's like come out more into center stage to understand all of Ananda. Because I know sometimes people become involved at Ananda and they'll come into, they'll join the community or whatever. And you'll come from the outside and you'll think, well, all the people here just must be saints. They all must be perfect. And they're not. You know, that's just the way they are. Sometimes I, I was joking actually with Haridas. Haridas and I have known each other for more than 30 years, 32, 33, 34, maybe 35 years. Haridas was 18 or 19 when I first met him, and I wasn't much older than that. Suffice to say, a lot has happened to both of us in those years. And I was saying I never know whether to really give people all the, the real nitty-gritty about the people they respect. <laughs> in order to help them understand how they got to be the people they respect or just to let it go, you know? 
And it's, it really is kind of a dilemma because you don't want to just be, because you yourself don't even remember and God knows you don't want to remember. You could barely live through it once. You certainly don't want to live through it twice or three times and you don't want everybody looking at you remembering it. It's bad enough that you still have some of the same friends and they do know. But fortunately, all our memories are going, so it's all getting better. <laughs> now, where was I going with that? Where was I? Oh, yes, directional, directional. So you come into Ananda, and sometimes some people are, with all due respect, naive enough to just be shocked the first time something happens, you know? A marriage breaks up, or, you know, just some, like, normal life experience that happens. And it happens at Ananda as much as everywhere else. And, and you sort of have to try to explain, you know, it's not where people are standing, it's the direction they're facing. And the way they relate to their life experiences, which is entirely different. What this spiritual path gives you is not a guarantee that you won't have experiences, but a way to work with them. And that's, that's just like, it sounds so little, but that's everything. Because nobody can wipe the karmic slate clean just because you now say, I believe, I am a member, I will, I do Kriya. I mean, no such luck, kids. You just like have to live it through. But you live it through with different tools. And how you what your intention is in relation to it. And so Swamiji says, you know, to try to find absolute values is just a quagmire. You never get out of it. Because there are no absolute values in this world. You have to transcend this world to find them. But, and, and things are relative, but Swami is often saying that it implies relative to something. It, it's relative to the direction you're going. And so when you, when you have, what am I trying to say? It's the point being that if you recognize that self-realization is your goal, that transcendence is your goal, that the ego and all its endless ups and downs are not really what we're trying to endorse, we're trying to transcend it, then you work with everything differently. And Swami says it so marvelously in here that in order to help people grow in the direction of the light, you have to also relate, he's talking as artists, you have to also relate to what they're actually experiencing. If you merely and constantly only present to them the finished point, it, it's just, you, you don't even see it. You, you can't touch it. That's why the masters incarnate. That's why the self-realized masters take human bodies, are born in human lives, have, you know, sometimes husbands, wives, and children, and jobs, and uh, sadhanas, and, and yearnings, and catastrophes, and even, even the masters play-act out these dramas, in a sense. It's not, they don't actually have the karma, um, but they take on the role. You know, they're going to play the part of a living human being so that we have a connecting point. So we can say, we can see uh, 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 the story or the real life of a man or a woman walking and doing and how they relate. And when the land was threatened, what did they do? And when the lawsuit was filed, what did they do? And when someone tried to take Sri Teshwar's property away from him, what did he do? I mean, very straightforward. And so you see not only how did he behave, but what was his consciousness. And so you see that there's a connecting point, and then you see how it's transcended. And so then Swami writes, a drunken person who's celebrating his drunkenness and celebrating his debauchery and makes art out of his debauchery puts across a debauched vibration. And other debauchees, is that a word? <laughs> you know, well, like, really like it. Boy, that's great art, you know, because bingo, it's right where they are, and they can all look at it together, and they can all just go down with it, right? And the Swami says, why say pe that people shouldn't do it? You know, if they want to do it, that's who they are. It's not up to us to say that they should, shouldn't. But a drunken person 
could write could make great art if his his if his expression was his desire to transcend that isn't that just a beautiful way to put it because maybe he's filled with remorse the um, the hound of heaven was written by a man who was who was very down and out and uh, i think was addicted to opium had a very difficult life and uh, but but his whole relationship to the experience he was having was the desire to transcend it and so all of that uh, failure and suffering uh, and misery that he had gone through was then and he was still in it he wasn't free of it but he he was still yearning to get free and that yearning brought this extraordinary inspiration in this the hound of heaven because in his suffering he had had this experience of god's desire to help you and how every bad thing that had happened to him that he'd been so afraid of was really god trying to save him the hound of heaven is that story about how the hound pursues him wherever he goes and he just hears this relentless footfall and he tries to hide in human love and he tries to hide in this experience and that experience and wherever he is there's this relentless footsteps coming behind him and then finally this dark shadow starts coming over and then he realizes it's the hand of god coming down to lift him up and it's an extraordinary poem master used to recite it because he loved it so much but that's a, just a perfect example that he could never have written that without the experience he had but he didn't celebrate his debauchery he used it as the stepping off point you see and that's another way of saying that maybe mozart did have his problems right but whatever he was actually experiencing in his life he directed his energy toward this transcendence and enough of him was freed from whatever he was struggling with you know because we don't um, we don't evolve in an even fashion we evolve evolve very unevenly and we can be very um, bound in this area and free in this area you know he he had the energy and the desire for mozart had the ability to tune right into that and whatever else was going on in his life it wasn't the direction he was facing you see and also the other thing that uh, that's what we always say about Anand. It's not really where you are. It's which direction you're facing. And it's better if you're also moving. <laughs> but you can be standing still as long as you're facing the right direction. I mean, eventually you have to move. But you can stop for a while and contemplate whether you're going to move. But just keep facing the right direction. And so that word is, is enormously important. And that's also important for those of us who are attempting to be creative in any way that we mustn't ever think that I'm not worthy of doing this or I'm not good enough to do this and again Swami gives us such a per perfect answer in this book because he says what all you have to do is you have to be true to your experience and he, he says it very wonderfully at the beginning of one of the chapters that we read he said don't make any comparisons he said the conscious mind is always comparing one thing to another we can't we can't help but do that but but the comparisons really have nothing to do with artistic expression because what gives art uh, and creativity its power um, is that it is a unique it, it's a unique moment in time that only you can have and whatever level of experience that is if you're true to your experience and then later on in this chapter he really talks about some sort of guidelines for really how to relate to your own experience if it's your own genuine experience then that's what you have to offer 
And it, it will resonate universally because our own experiences are also universal experiences. We're all human beings. Swami, he didn't, I haven't yet come to it in this book, but in other places he uses the wonderful word. Uh, he describes what is original in a very different way. He says orig- what, that which is original is not that which has never been done before, but is that which springs from your own point of origin. Isn't that perfect? In other words, that it's true to you. It's true to your experience, and it, it, the the uh, one of the ways in which uh, art refines our consciousness is this: uh, the ability to trust your own experience, to overcome the the carping spirit even within ourselves, and the the conscious mind's tendency to try to make a whole out of lots of little pieces instead of intuitively perceiving reality. I mean, all of these things are what hold us back spiritually, too. But it's sort of like we teach people the energization exercises after we've taught them to meditate. We teach them to sit and watch the breath and do the Hong Sa Mantra. Almost all of you are trained in that, perhaps all of you. And then the second course is the energization exercises. And the first course, everybody comes in and does what, what people expect to do in a meditation course. They sit down and they meditate. They close their eyes and they sit silent. You come to the energization exercises and we teach people to go, and we say, that's meditation. And people think that we're crazy. Okay? But what we're really dealing with in the energization exercises, the rest of them, that's just the first of them. Again, almost all of you know them. But what causes, what makes it so difficult to meditate is because our mind runs away from us. And our mind running away from us is our lack of ability to focus our energy and hold it on the point that we're trying to hold it to. And it's, we, we, we learn to meditate by practicing meditation. We learn to concentrate by practicing concentration. But if we can learn in a general sense to master and direct our energy, then we can apply that back to meditation. And somehow it's easier if you can get your hands around it. So the energization exercises, so named because they have to do with creating energy and mastering it, are like a more um, graspable way to say, okay, I'll tense my arms and then I'll withdraw the energy and I'll relax. I'll, I'll, I'll find my left thigh and I will just tense that thigh and then I'll just, just tense my calf and then I'll just tense both my calves and all of that concentration, and because it's tangible, it, it trains your willpower to focus on a goal and direct your energy. And then you sit to meditate, and really that's all you're doing. You're focusing on something and directing your energy. But we've practiced in a less abstract manner. So it is when we're trying to be creative and try to trust God and trying to be in the flow and to be in tune. It's all the same exercises that we use for spiritual life, except we have something more tangible to work with. The poem doesn't scan correctly. The song, the melody doesn't quite sound right. So you have to go deeper and meditate a little bit more and try to tune in a little bit more. And then suddenly it comes to you and you have this feeling of you know what it feels like. And that's what we're doing um, for the rest of our spiritual life too, you see. So it's a very good sadhana. Just as simple as that. It's wonderful sadhana to be creative. Master always said, you know, write, if you, if you read two hours, write three hours. If you write three hours, meditate five hours. And he would just, but he'd always just put in there, be creative, be creative, because of what it would do for us. Comments or questions or thoughts?
Okay, there's a few things here now that are, I just want to be sure and touch. He, Swami spends a little bit of time in a whole chapter trying to explain to us exactly what intuition is. Because intuition, the development of intuition, the use of intuition, and the, the, the creating through intuition is really the key here to upward moving energy. And he, he makes the distinction, you know, he talks about just very calm feeling. And, and it's an important point to understand because too often when we're talking about yoga and being even-minded and cheerful and all of the different things that we sometimes associate with it, people still have a little trouble in their mind not thinking that somehow that's denying some aspects of life or, or taking away some desirable aspects of life or dulling down our feelings or uh, how, how boring it would be. And so we're always, Swami's always trying to make it clear that the more refined our experiences, the deeper our experiences, the more centering our experiences, the deeper, deeper our experiences, and how so much of what we have come to think of as pleasurable is really just rocking on the waves and that it really isn't as much fun. It makes us more seasick than we realize, even though in our initial enthusiasm we think that this is the wave that's going to stay up forever. And so he's trying to get us to, to feel that the power of intuition is, and the power of, is the power of, as he says over and over again, calm feeling, where everything that we're trying to, we're trying to get intensity out of emotion but we're actually, what we're doing when we try to get intensity out of emotion is we move to the edges of our experience and, and, and try to make it feel, he uses the image sometimes of taking a hose and by crimping it and trying to make the jet sort of uh, skinny and squeezing the power through a small hole that that's real power instead of relaxing and opening it up. And then, then the, whole, um, the whole river can flow flow through us at that time. And so he is always expressing to us that intuition, which is the link between the rational and the superconscious mind, this in, 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 intuition is how the superconscious speaks to us, can only come to us when we get off of the roller coaster. Because the roller coaster by its very nature is on the edges and intuition has to be in the unifying center of things. And so he, does that make sense? I mean, people know what intuition is. It's not like it's that hard to say. But later he spends a lot about how you have to get... You, emotion um, clouds your clarity. And when your clarity is clouded, it's very hard to be really inspired. And he, he talks a lot. And I've, I must say, I have certainly experienced this. I was joking with Sharon earlier today. I mean, my particular creative expression is primarily through words, through these words, and then sometimes through written words, yes. I was just seeing a note here that I really enjoyed. I wrote to myself when Swami says, you know, when an artist makes a piece of art, what he's really giving you is himself. And it's not just a matter of technique. You have to ask yourself, would I like this man as a friend? Because you put his art or her art in your house, he's sort of talking to you all the time. And would you really want that person to be in your house talking to you all the time? And one of my friends talks about how through her entire childhood, there was this charcoal drawing on the wall in the dining room just across from where she sat. And it was this man just anguished like this. She would just have to stare at it, you know, for all growing up. And she, you know, in retrospect, she thinks, why would my parents have wanted 
such a, a you know a tortured image on the wall and it was clearly a, a tortured image that was not aspiring to be untortured it was just celebrating its own anguish but many people will you know think of things like that this is again what Swami's saying well this is it's a well executed piece and it really conveys that sense of extreme despair but would you really like want someone sitting in your house expressing extreme despair all the time you would get very tired of it because it's this vibrations that and Swami says that, you know, all art is an expression of vibrations. We'll come to that more in a few moments. But um, the, the, all the other thing that I wanted to say about intuition, I remembered. But he was talking about you can't be intuitive unless you're non-attached. And, and the thing that blocks intuition the most, when we just give a class on how to develop intuition, the single thing that, that makes intuition the most difficult to... to um, access is when you have a bias in one way or another that God wants wants to tell you something but if you're pre-committed in one way or another that pre-commitment makes it very hard to hear the voice of the spirit if you're attached to even a lot of times in artistic expression we just get attached to a certain way of doing things I know in the years of my working to become a writer to the extent that I am which is by no means at all an accomplished writer but I have certainly worked at it intermittently I've worked at it intermittently for a long time I think that would be like like to say exactly what it is but I've observed you know when you're when you're after you've written something and you're editing you have to be very detached even from your own words and I've watched lots of times myself write something and I'll just refuse to take out paragraphs that don't fit because I like them you know or somebody will be have written a song and they'll just lack a particular line but the song has evolved in such a way that that line no longer belongs but they're not detached enough to really see that it no longer belongs because you become attached even to your own creative output many of you are nodding your heads because you know that and you can't feel anymore that this doesn't belong here anymore and that's the that's the most obvious at least by that point you've accomplished something but a lot of times we just have a bias you know I want to write a happy song or a sad song I know when I had to uh, someone asked me on Swami's 75th birthday or I think it was her 70th birthday maybe someone um, I'd written a comic song for I sometimes take Swami's melodies and write comic lyrics Swamiji said I have a genius for writing comic lyrics although you can't really be a genius at comic lyrics he said he said you were Rogers and Hammerstein <laughs> he was just joking of course but what he was saying was he was actually trying to teach me something very serious because of course writing comic lyrics means nothing to me I do it better than I do a lot of other things because I'm completely detached what do I care I'm just writing comic lyrics to a little song and so in fact I can do it very much better than I can do many things that are very important because it's not that important right and so it's one of the reasons Swami you know just absurdly even suggested once that we go into business together he would write melodies and I would write um, the comic lyrics and we would write commercials together he actually suggested that <laughs> But it, anyway, so I had written for David's 50th birthday, I took Swami's song Bluebell and wrote a happy birthday, David. Happy birthday, David, 50 years today. <laughs> and so on like that. It was just a little ditty. So for Swami's 70th birthday, uh, someone thought it would be fun if I wrote a little ditty and that we all sang it together, right? And I tried very hard to write a little ditty, but there was no way to. It came out to be an extremely serious song. It just, there was just no way and instead of the image that you know had been there that we would all just sort of do this sort of happy little number I mean it was just 
totally different than that. And I was there in that. I kept trying to force out, you know, what we had preconceived we were going to do, and there was just absolutely no way it would come. I just had to shift it over and do something completely different. But if I had been determined to write a, a comic song, I probably could have eventually gotten something else, but it never would have worked. You know, many times, I'm sure all of you who have done things, you just have to wait and see what it's going to say. Swamiji is at the point with his writing where he doesn't know from paragraph to paragraph what he's going to write. I mean, what, to speak of a book outline? He has no idea. He just starts writing because he's just been in it so much. I mean, he used to be a little different than that. But now it's just, just how he does it. He just waits to see what it's going to do. And it shows him what it's going to do. And then he works with what it's done. And he's just completely impartial. Whatever it's supposed to be, that's all it's supposed to be. And he writes, too. He, you know, he said, he says he's never written a single note that wasn't absolutely sincere. And that just wasn't as clearly as he could make it, exactly what it was supposed to be. Not preference, not what he liked, but just exactly what it was supposed to be. Now... You can see how much you have to work to be able to be like that. Um, but that's the kind of intuition. Whatever it's supposed to be, that's what I'll, I'll write. I'm not trying to... And whenever you try to um, have an agenda, I'm going to show somebody that I can do this better, I'm going to make this one different than the other one, it's, just, it's always a mess. Everyone knows it. It's just a horrible mess. Swamiji says one, the one time somebody said to him that, oh, Swami, you write so beautifully, you must have been Shakespeare in a past life. And he tells the story, he says, the only time you ever had writer's block. <sighs> I can believe that. He said, uh, he sat down to write, and this thought was in his mind, mustn't disappoint my public, you know. <laughs> and he said, for the life of him, he couldn't make one sentence come out right. He said he just spent the longest time just flipping words around, and there was just no... He had no idea how to do it. And then he finally realized that this thought was in his mind, you know, that he had been Shakespeare in a past life and he was a great writer. And he just banished that thought and immediately all the words fell into place. You know? So sometimes when we're having difficulties with what we're doing, we have to realize it, it's, it's just there's some lack of alignment. And if we can get ourselves back into alignment, then it works. And there's many other reasons that he talks about too. But that's a very important one. Intuition won't flow if we have an attachment. Very often that attachment is ego in some form or another. Either we're afraid that we're not going to do it well enough, or we, we're proud, we think we're going to do it really well, or, you know, or any one of those alternatives. Yes? It's not going to necessarily come out in its finished form, mm -hmm. but to but then well, I, I find that part of you that evaluates will start to block. Right. Well, uh, actually, <laughs> I, I, evaluating is a really bad thing for me, and it sounds like it's for you too, because you're slipping. Okay, subconscious, conscious, superconscious. Subconscious is just the sort of dream state in which things happen. He gives the example in there of the Kublai Khan by Coleridge and other things. Conscious takes things apart and analyzes them and says, this is better than that, this is good, this isn't good. Now, but superconscious is the intuitive part where it's just, this is the way it's supposed to be. And you evaluate it more by intuition. You just, you kind of get into the flow and it flows. 
And then you just have an energy sense. I, I recall I wrote, it was just a letter that one of the, I had to write uh, for something we were doing for one of the websites. And it was a big letter, and it was an important letter. This was when we were in Assisi, and I had to write this big thing out. And I, I, I showed it to Swamiji, and I had worked very hard on it, and I knew it was, I knew it was right. I could feel it was right. But he sort of went through and helped me. And he came to just one, I was sort of like right here on the page. I was, I was looking over his shoulder. And then he just made a small change. And I said immediately, I knew there was something wrong there, but I couldn't tell what it was. And I realized that I could just feel that the energy didn't work right there, but I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with the energy. But just shifting a few words. But he said, oh, if you, could, if, you could have, if you could have felt that, he said, you're doing really well. He was just sort of helping me to confirm that that's how it worked. But whenever I sit down and try to analyze it or evaluate it, it's just that's when you destroy it, usually. I've had, personally, I've had a real problem over-editing is what you would call it. But what I write is good and then I ruin it. Because I move out of the superconscious back into the conscious and then I start evaluating. How do you avoid doing that? All the other things that he talks about, concentration, clarity, um, detachment, calm feeling. Does that make sense? So sometimes you have to know when to quit. And Ram Bhakta has been a great friend of mine over these years because, you know, I remember on several occasions having sent things to him and he said, please give me back your first draft. This is awful. You know, and he's very frank and he was right. He said, you've just ruined it. You've taken all the heart out of it with just overanalyzing. Now Swamiji, still, he just does it intuitively. He just goes through with, I mean, I'm talking about writing or, or singing. Just goes through until, now this comes to, and I'm somehow trying not to skip to the end of the book, but let me skip to the end of the book. I mean, the end of our chapters today. He talks about being absolutely clear about the feeling that you're trying to express. So you ask yourself the question, does this feel like what I want to say? I was Actually, when I was reading that, I was thinking about you because we had talked about this in dance and Swami's music and all of that. Of, um, and, and not just uh, because we've had this discussion, I'll use it as an example so I don't just talk about writing, but Claire and I have talked about choreographing to Swami's music and Claire making the comment, but the music says it all. And so when I was reading through this, I was thinking precisely of that issue because Swami talks a, a lot about art is the reflection of your own experience. And he said, as he uses this example, just to re replicate a symphony that sounds like the traffic is not art because that's just the thing itself. He said, but you hear the traffic and then you maybe create something about what your experience was from hearing the traffic. And after you've had the experience, then you create something that shares with others Oh, the inspiration you felt from it. So yes, I think Swami's music says exactly what he wants it to say. And when we listen to it, we have deep experiences of exactly what he wanted to say. But then, you've had an experience of it. And how that experience would look coming out of your body is then your original contribution to the music that he's written. You're not trying to take his experience and say it one more time. You're trying to take the experience that you've had from what he's done and show, share with other people what it means to you. And that's why when I'm looking at both of you, I've seen you all dance at different times to Swami's music, especially like on Christmas Eve when you and Marguerite have danced. And just there, it's just like, yes, that's just what it sounded. That's just what it felt like when I heard that music. Because I can tell by the way you're moving 
that you had an experience that I can completely relate to. And it isn't, it isn't interpreting the song. It's expressing your experience of the song. Now, where, where Swami talks about the importance of this is that you have to be very still and clear within yourself and really have an experience. You can't have an experience, first of all, if you're just crazy and scattered. If you're not really listening, or if all the time you're listening, your mind is doing a whole bunch of other things, in this sense, listening to music to dance to it, or listening to it while you dance to it, whatever it might be. You have to know exactly what you're feeling. And he, he's very clear. You don't necessarily have to put it in words. And he says, like Mozart may have been as inarticulate and as goofy in his speech as some of the worst presentations of him show, because words weren't his language. He expressed, it, he expressed himself perfectly in the language of music. Maybe he couldn't express himself in words. You know, not everybody is, uh, has, has many languages to speak. Now, uh, let's see. Oh, so it's not like you need to be able to say, and it may not even help to say. Now, this particular song is the story of a soul doing this, and when they meet this obstacle, then it goes like this, because dance is not a verbal language. It may help you, maybe, depending on how your creativity works, to put out some verbal message for yourself, but maybe it won't help. Maybe it's just, this is what it feels like. I just finished a biography of George O'Keefe, and she would contemplate why that particular line created that particular feeling. Excuse me, other people would ask her to talk about it, and she would refuse to put it into words. She just, that's how it felt. And that was that. She'd had an experience of looking out across the desert in New Mexico where she lived, and this was the experience. And you could have it if you wanted to by looking at the line. And because she was so concentrated, very often you got it. And you couldn't necessarily even say what it was, but some, so there was some transference of conscious vibration in the doing of that. But always... If you don't know what you really feel, it's just impossible to create anything from it. Now, of course, verbal, uh, verbal expression is so much more tangible. And this was what I was starting to say. Sharon and I talked about this 25 years ago when I was really struggling. Swamiji said to me, he said, you really don't know what you want to say, so just to be sure you say it two or three times. <laughs> And, you know, subsequently, at the time, it was just like I really didn't know what he was saying, but I never forgot it. And gradually, as I got more clear in my thinking and in my ability to express myself, I began to see exactly what he meant. That I was just wasn't quite sure what my concept was, so I just threw in a whole bunch. And that's exactly what he writes about here. You have artists who really don't have any idea what they think or feel. I mean... Think how many people that you know don't have any idea what they think or feel. It's just common. And many of them have technique, artistic technique, so they impose it on canvas or rock or dance floors or music. They have no idea what they really think, and so they just kind of randomly shoot out with energy, just exactly what he describes, in hopes that somebody will think it's profound. And when somebody sort of thinks it's profound, they pretend like they knew it all along. Right? But it's all, as he says, just a sham. But I, I always find now, if I'm having a lot of trouble, it's writing something, it's invariably because I don't know what I want to say. I don't really know, you know what the class I'm trying to describe really is, or I don't really understand what the essence of this situation was, or I don't understand, as Swami often says, who I'm talking to. 
Swamiji said when he would write originally, he would always have, he would always know exactly who he's talking to. He would personify someone, and he would write directly to them, and and then he would know sort of what mind he was trying to reach. When I was trying to write the websites for Ananda a couple of years ago, we know about SRF and all and the Bertolucci lawsuit and stuff. For a long time, for three weeks, I kept trying to write it to Eric Estep, who was the most biased, hateful. Uh, impossible critic of Ananda on the other side. And I I don't know why I was trying to write to him, but of course every sentence I wrote he refuted, so I couldn't write anything. I was just stranded for three weeks. Finally I realized, Asha, you'll never convince him. I mean, he was nowhere in my world. This was all just like sort of subconscious. You'll never convince him. You're not writing this for him. And I don't know if I've ever said this, but I wrote it to Mary Bicknell. She was perfect. Because she was receptive, she was interested, but she hadn't been around long enough to know everything. But she was fair-minded, very smart, you know, and so I just wrote it to her. As soon as I started writing it for Maria, it just flowed like water. Because then there was clarity, right? And I just forgot that Eric wouldn't like it, because who cares? I'm never going to reach Eric. Do you see? And, and now it's so, I mean, now I, by, by no means am I home free. It would be ridiculous to say that. But I have clues. Yes? I would absolutely think that you would. Now, maybe you personify it. I mean, okay, I'll, as a public speaker, which is a kind of performing artist, you either are speaking to, I mean, I'm often speaking to individual people, or you're speaking to the collective sense of the audience. You have, I think you have to know who you're trying to communicate to. I mean, why would you do anything without knowing who you're trying to communicate to? Now, you may be creating it for a particular audience that doesn't exist, you know, so it's sort of like this is your, your type of person that you're trying. But that's also, I've certainly seen in artistic expression, you don't know who you're communicating to. So it would be exactly the same thought. Am I communicating to a person who's never heard Swami's music? Am I communicating to someone who's in tune with it? And obviously, the, it would make a huge difference what, what you would try to say. Because also it has to do how much of yourself you reveal. Because if you're if you're if you're having to perform for a very hostile audience, you would be much more closed. If you're performing for a very receptive audience, you'd be much more willing to give yourself to it. So you have to decide in advance, you know, sort of where, where you're going to be in all of this. And that Swami says that somewhere in this. That's a lot of why people have trouble because it is so self-revealing that some people just can't do it. I mean, you you feel it as a performing artist, your body standing up there, but a poet is any anybody, a painter, anybody would feel that way. You just wouldn't want people to see it. And you have to, and that's where you have to become again very, very impersonal. And he and he says it so perfectly. I mean there's so much in this book that's so perfect. You you stop thinking about yourself and you just think about the experience or the truth that you're expressing. And then there's no there's no concern about what you're revealing. You're revealing this experience. It's a universal experience. It's not about me. It was so amazing. Last night, many of us were at this oratorio performance that we did in Sacramento. Many of you know Ram, who's the big black man who sings. He is he's such a, he's a huge person. He's a big person physically. He has a tremendous aura. He just has a capacity to, to be the pivotal point of huge crowds of people. I mean, he's really, he's a very unusual man. And he has this beautiful singing voice. And just, this was just the rehearsal I, in the performance. I, we had our backs to him because we were the choir. 
but everybody was getting up for sound checks, and Ram just, he, he is, he's so non-involved. He just stood up, opened his mouth, just sang like an angel, just like this. Totally, nothing moved. He just opened his mouth and the music came out. There wasn't any tension, you know, anywhere in him. He was perfectly still, but was so fascinating, and it was subtle, but as soon as he finished, there was no expression on his face that he had just sung a beautiful song. I mean, in the sense of, I have just sung a beautiful song. There was just, it was just a com completely a, a face that had not taken any of what had happened. It had just flown, flown through, he'd enjoyed it like everyone else, and then he stepped off and it was done. It was very, very instructive. And it was sort of like, well, how was he able to do that? Well, here's a clue. You know, there was, there was nobody doing it. He just, it was the experience. He was entirely directing us to the experience. And the experience was the song. And once the song was over, it, what difference did it make that he had done it? That was what was happening. Now, of course, is that easy? No, all of us know that's not easy. But is it worth uh, cultivating? Oh, yes. Because, among other things, it's so much fun. Because the, the degree to which the ego holds it, you squeeze out some of the intuition. And your own experience is, to that extent, exactly proportionally less blissful. Because you're still riding waves, you're not in the heart of what you're doing. So let's take a little bit of a break. Other comments about uh, what we've been talking about before we go on? All right. I wanted to just, I, I just made notes of the various points on the, on the chapter called How to Be Creative. Because I, I, again, as I was reading them, I could see, um, I mean, it really is all in there. And they seem subtle, some of them, but it's really worth focusing in on. Some of them we've already talked about. Um, Swami makes a very interesting statement at the beginning, and he says, you have to understand, he says, you need to create from the center of, the, of your experience and from the center of inspiration into the center of what you're trying to create. It's sort of a, um, a little bit of a, uh, something that's not necessarily obvious. But what he's really trying to say is, it's not a matter of technique, it's a matter of getting clarity about what you're doing and also realizing, he says this in so many different places, that that natural things expand from the center outward. And it's not a question of like sort of having out, outward ideas and then pasting them on something. It's like really focusing in and getting to the heart of what you're trying to say or do. Um, I know because I work with words, I often think of it like that. I just try to tune in and just think, what is the essence of what I'm trying to say? Because so often you'll like, if I, I'm trying to imagine if you're singing or dancing and you just you get caught on like this note or this step and you lose track you're not moving from the center out you're just caught in some peripheral part of it and a lot of times when you're caught in a peripheral edge of it if you go back and just try to get get back into the center of the inspiration is how he calls it that and, it, and you feel it from the center out then again everything else flows because you're more in intuition instead of just trying to paste the pieces together he also he makes this comment that whenever you, if, if you are, are working on a sort of continuous basis creatively, he talks about how important it is to wipe the slate clean once you've done something. And, and he says the interesting phrase, he says, um, 
if you find yourself repeating yourself, be concerned that you're plagiarizing yourself, is how he put it. And it was an interesting way to put it, because what he meant was that you're not truly being creative. Now, of course, you know, if we're being artistic for a living and we're making a product that may be individually created, but maybe there's a pattern that sells, there's a particular kind of flower that um, sells a lot and you're making your living doing it, not everything that you do is the heart of your inspiration. I mean, Swami made a a point between some things, even that are creative fine art, also may have a craft element to them because it's a product that you create and you can't every single time just start over and make it anew. But there are points at which I, I know friends of mine make these beautiful carved tiles and they're, they're carved shapes of animals and so on. And of course, once they make the model, they repeat it many, many times. And it, so it goes then from being fine art to being crafts, but the inspiration was there in the first place. You can even be painting something that's going to be mass-produced and you have the inspiration the first time, but then you need to plagiarize yourself because you, that's what you're doing. But when you're really doing an, an individual piece, I know there's a lot of times the thought comes to you, well, this worked well before. And it may, in fact, work well again, because it's not a question that has to be never have been done before, but if you know that this worked, and you're just doing it again because it worked, and part of that is to, as Swami said, it, forget that you ever, you've ever danced before, you've ever sung before. It, it, it's interesting for our singers, because we have this limited repertoire, relatively speaking, and it's not like you have the opportunity to go out and get new songs if you get bored with these. So it's really a, a necessity to just sing that song like you've never sung it before, like you've never even heard it before. Like these, this is the first time these words have been spoken. And if you're doing a dance or a play and you just have the character and you have to act it out over and over again, it's really a very dynamic challenge to just be there with it. And part of that is not to just sit and contemplate your past successes. It's really death to an artist to sit and contemplate their past successes because when you get up again, you'll be living in that. And, and so you just don't ever let yourself do that. Just, it happened, it's over. Just, I mean, Ram was perfect. As soon as he finished, he, he was just done. It had flowed through him and then it was over. And then when you come to it again, it's all fresh. You're, you yourself are not bored with it. It's very exciting that way. One of the most important words that Swami uses here, which he talked about once before, is to have faith that inspiration will come. And that's just such an, a simple, important thing for a creative artist. And, it, and he, he goes on talking about how do you develop that faith. And he talks about being solution-oriented. And he, he makes this, this is, he's, he's making a small reference here to things he's described at great length elsewhere, that the superconscious, there's always, there's always an answer. And the superconscious is the level of consciousness in which everything comes together in unity. It's, there's the superconscious level and then things divide down into all of our individuality. If you looked at it like the fingers of a hand, or, or they often say the, the separate jets of flame, but the gas is all the same. And you have all these apparent separatenesses and that's the conscious level on which we live. Everything seems fragmented and separated and how will it ever come together? But on the superconscious level, the pattern is revealed. Just in the same way in our lives, we often don't know what's happening. Why is this happening to me? I don't want this to happen. This doesn't make any sense. Why did that happen? But either later on in our lives and sometimes not until we die, we just see that, oh, it all happened the way it just had to happen. It was just woven together in these beautiful threads. When people have near-death experiences, 
It's one of the things they often come back with. They just suddenly, they're not worried about anything and they just see that it was all happening as it was supposed to happen. Now the superconscious level is where everything comes back into unity. In other words, there's no problem, there's no sense of difference that can't ultimately be resolved on the superconscious level. Now, the conscious mind sees the differences of things. The conscious mind is related to the fact that we're all in physical bodies and our bodies are separate. It's sort of defined by that. The superconscious level is when we exit these bodies and we're in the spirit and we see that it's all spirit, the same spirit inhabiting these bodies. So the conscious mind is inclined to see differences and to see problems. It's inclined to see the world in terms of the problems that have to be overcome. The superconscious level is the level on which the solutions are there. And one of the extremely important things that Swami is always just emphasizing in every area of our life is he uses the word to be solution-oriented. And that just means to be sort of always looking at things from the point of view that there's got to be an answer. And it's so easy to fall into the thinking that, oh God, there's so many problems. Instead of there's got to be an answer. I can't tell you how many times over the years Swamiji has suggested something that was right in front of our noses to do and was the perfect solution to what we were dealing with, but we were all so oriented toward thinking about the problem that we weren't emanating any dynamic faith that there was a solution. And Swami would look at whatever it was that was going on and would just say, there is a solution and the solution is. And as Swami describes in here, it was a very strong thought directed with a lot of willpower, created the magnetism and just drew the idea. And anybody could have had it, but none of us did have it. And a lot of times when you're doing creative work, this sort of doubt sort of creeps in. Oh, there's no answer for this. I'm never really going to be able to solve this problem. The mind becomes problem-oriented. And Swamiji says, don't even say, I have all these problems to overcome. Just say, there's solutions to all of these issues. I'm going to go in here and the solution to this is this, the solution to this is this. And you have this deeply held belief that it's there and you just have to do it. And certainly, I know in myself, again, I mean, I don't, I'm not that good at these things, but I know what the problems are. And I can feel it in me. I feel this sort of creeping sense of, oh, I'm just not going to be able to do this. And then, of course, I can't. Oh, surprise, surprise. But at other times, and this is what I see in Swamiji, he just accepts it because he knows it can be done. And we have to work. That's one of the things that we have to work the most in ourselves, is just the belief that it exists and it will be given to me. And to approach it with that kind of dynamic will and to train ourselves to be affirmative and positive and solution-oriented and just not let the mind go down to, oh, I've always had trouble when I come to this point. It's just really never going to work. Sometimes I try and they just don't happen. No, no, no. There's a dance to be created. There's a song to be sung. There's a poem to be written. And this is what it is. And that's, what, that's how he describes Master. And Swami, when, he, when we came out of the Uffizi once in Florence, he remarked, he said, one of the reasons that people can't create great art anymore is they don't have any faith. They don't have any faith in the superconscious level, so they don't even try to draw their inspiration from the superconscious. But we as devotees, we know that the superconscious is there. And that doesn't mean that you and you and you and I are superconscious. It just means that that's where we'd rather draw our inspiration from. Do you see? So we don't have to be great souls. We just have to want to be oriented that direction. And we have to just work in all areas of our life to believe that God will be there. 
And that's one of the, the affirmations for prosperity, which is a prosperity in all areas. I go forth, I go forth in perfect faith in the power of omnipresent good to bring me what I need at the time I need it. And that applies to creative work as much as it applies to anything. You know, now I need it. I need this letter. I need this solution. I need this dance step. I need the inspiration to sing this song. I need the voice. I need the brush stroke, whatever it might be. I believe it's there. I know it's there. What I am doing is already existing in the astral world. I wouldn't have even thought of doing it if it wasn't there. It's just so powerful. And that faith then has to be coupled with willpower. And that willpower is just the hard determination to just not give up until it comes to you. And just keep persevering and then just putting out a lot of hard work. You know, Swamiji's, his effortless writing that's so simple. Um, hush, my word, he goes over something 50 times easily. I mean, he, he hears about writers who write fast, but they, they publish, you know, months before he publishes. He just goes over it and over it until he's just sure that he's just put the most possible energy he can into it. So don't think that to have faith and inspiration is anything that means you don't do, do hard work. And that's where he talks about willpower. Willpower plus faith, you know, creates clear, strong energy, positive energy. Again, many years ago, Swamiji said, you work hard, but you spend all your energy just being emotional. That's what he said to me. And again, I didn't know what he was talking about. But so much of my energy was spent bemoaning the fact that I, wasn't, that I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> you know, just, oh, it's so hard. Oh, it's so difficult. Oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do it. So, I mean, I felt spent at the end of it. But almost none of it went forward. You know, all of it just went in circles. Because I didn't have faith. And I was so hard trying to have faith in myself. I forgot to have faith in God. Just, of course you don't have any competency. But that's not the issue. The point is you're completely sincere and you feel it and it has to be done. Swamiji himself says sometimes many things he's done, he just did them because there was nobody else around to do them. I loved that when he said that. I thought, well, that's a good way to look at it. I'm not doing this because I'm particularly talented. I'm just doing this because there's nobody else around to do it. So we'll just give it our best shot. And he, he says that too, even though he talks about you know how important it is. And then he quotes the Beatles at the end, which I just love. When uh, one of the, I think I quoted this in the first class too, when one of the Beatles was asked, do you think your mu- music will live? And the Beatle answered, why should it? <laughs> and sometimes that's just the way to feel. I'm just doing this for the fun of it. This is just therapy. Sometimes I find it's just helpful just to, to de-importance it. Sharon and I joke a lot about the program guide having a shelf life of four months. You know, no matter whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, at least it'll be gone in a very short period of time. <laughs> and if you're singing a song or doing a dance, it's only going to last four minutes. So then there it is. And that's just it. It's over. And sometimes you just do these things to get yourself to be more solution-oriented. Just get yourself to lighten up and just do it. We're just going to have a good time. It won't matter. And of course, the odd thing is, if you relax and have a good time, you almost always do a good job, too. It's just such a paradox this extreme anxiety to do a great thing is what completely keeps us from doing a great thing. It's just stupid. We're so stupid. <laughs> and Swami talks an enormous amount about clarity, and I talked about that already. But just being really, really clear about what you're trying to do. And when you, find, when you feel yourself confused, instead of just hammering away in a confused manner, just stop and pull back a little bit 
and say, well, you know, what am I really trying to say? What do I really want to express? And whether that's a verbal concept or just to get back to your clear feeling, because a lot of times you'll realize you're, you're not, it's not working because you've moved out of that feeling. You know, you've moved so far out of it, you don't even remember it. Instead of just expressing a childlike joy, suddenly it's become full of angst. Instead of, uh, you know, creating hope, you're suddenly doing something that becomes very depressive. Instead of uh, being kind, in, when I had to do all that writing about the lawsuit, I was always walking this fine line of being really snide. And Sheila was my helper on that, but I would just fall, I would just, I had this very dignified tone I was going to keep. But then these snide remarks would creep in, you know. And sometimes I'd see them. I'd write them just for my own satisfaction, and then I would take them out. And sometimes some of them would stay there. And sometimes Sheila and I would argue about them because I liked them. (laughs) But she would point out to me that they were snide. And then I would remember, no, that's not, you know, I have a clear idea of what I'm trying to put across here, and snide is not part of it. Maybe part of me, but it's not part of what I'm doing. And so what I found myself is that usually when I think I'm in a hopeless conundrum, I'm really not. I've just moved out of the clarity of what I started out to do. So it's just you have faith that the solution is there or you fall into problem consciousness. So you have to have faith that the solution is there. You have to put a lot of energy into it. And when, you, when it's not coming, step back and ask yourself if you're, if you're clouding your concept. Or do you even know what your concept is? Maybe you have to stop and think a little bit longer. But what is it that I really want to feel? And it can be just a seed thought. When I, was, when I used to prepare sermons, and I still instru- uh, got, uh, suggest to people that this is how they do it, you know, when, some, when people would prepare to give sermons, especially when they were new, they would just, many times people would over-prepare, and they'd you know, come in with all these books, papers, and all these different things, and they'd lay all this out for like an eight-minute talk, and... And it would just be, you know, just like this and like this. And I would say, look, if somebody just came up to you and asked, how do you pray so that God will listen? You wouldn't say, oh, well, let me just, you know, check. You would just say something because it's your life. You would have an answer. Why practice meditation? You'd have an answer. I said, well, start there. Don't start with all these books. And then just add to it what your clear, spontaneous, true experience is. See, that's how Swami puts it, here. And then just know, and, and when, I would, uh, when I would say to people, decide before you go in just one or two things that you would like them to know when you walk out. And then just keep that. Just hang everything around that. And if you're getting too far away from it, you know, you're just too far away. Just come back to that. Just stay with just a few things you want them to know. And if you're doing a dance or singing a song, how do you want them to feel when it's over? And just stay there. And then you'll know what gestures, what words, what tones, everything, what goes with that. You're clear about what you're trying to put across or what your experience was. It can even be very subtle and complicated, but it can be clear. And then you'll know what fits. Um, Let me think about a few other things. 